Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You may not have heard much about it, but in the Medicare system, there's now something called direct contracting. It was started under Trump, and it's continued under Biden, and it allows private physician practices, hospitals, or insurance companies to contract directly with Medicare and get a set amount of money over the year. That contrasts with traditional Medicare, in which health care providers bill Medicare directly for services. The stated point of direct contracting is to experiment with new models that would save money and improve care. But its critics warn that it's a runaway scam that is being exploited by venture capital and private equity firms and that it'll lead to worse care in the long run based on private equity's poor record of delivering care in other settings. The project in question was designed by Adam Bowler, who was previously a dorm mate of Jared Kushner's and also the founder of Landmark Health, a VC-backed healthcare company. He was brought in to run the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation under Trump, and as he was designing this new model, career staff became concerned about conflicts of interest. When a calendar alert went out to staff in May 2019 reading, quote, discussion with Landmark on the direct contracting model, career staff were appalled. I obtained a group text in which they commiserated with one another and expressed their disgust over the corporate influence. This is a family podcast, so I'll edit the messages, but a sampling. This stuff is so effing gross, wrote one. Ugh, what the F, replied another. A third sent a link to the office of the inspector general, suggesting somebody report it. And these were not off-the-wall concerns. The office of the general counsel for the Health and Human Services Department warned in comments on a draft for the proposal that I obtained that it appeared as if the new project was in fact being set up to benefit specific companies. Quote, we are concerned based on the regular references to organizations like ChenMed, Oak Street Health, and Verily in the comments and otherwise that this model has been designed with specific private sector entities in mind. If accurate, this could create ethics concerns as the creation of this model would give those entities a leg up in the market. And the model has indeed been extremely attractive to VC and private equity-backed firms. It's now being overseen by Liz Fowler, who serves as director of CMMI. She was previously the top healthcare aide to Max Baucus during the Obamacare fight. And if you remember, Baucus was the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, which wrote the meat of the bill. CMMI itself came out of the Affordable Care Act. Previously, Fowler had worked in the insurance industry, and between her time with Baucus and now, she was an executive at Johnson & Johnson. This week, I published a story about the roots of the direct contracting program. Not long afterward, Fowler appeared at a conference by video in Washington and responded to the story. She appeared to be reading from a prepared statement. I appreciate the concerns that have been raised, some legitimate and some overblown. But as a responsible steward of Medicare, we appreciate the input and we're continuously looking for improvement opportunities, including how the model can help achieve our goals for advancing health equity. So I know that wasn't part of the question, but since I had the opportunity and since this issue's been in the press. I just wanted to take um, take the chance to weigh in and, and give you my perspective. 
Now, claiming that your for-profit model is actually in the business of generating equity, and they don't mean equity as in the stock market, is a rather old corporate trick. But what makes this story so compelling is that the principle behind this new Medicare effort is actually quite a good one. The insight behind it is that it is better to pay healthcare providers for getting good outcomes for their patients rather than simply paying them more the more they treat them. In other words, make health the goal of healthcare. Too often, progressives in general, and specifically when it comes to healthcare, spend too much time thinking about the spending side and not enough time on the delivery end. Even if Democrats somehow managed to enact Medicare for all, they'd still be doing it in a system where many of the providers are for-profit and where even the ones who are non-profit act like they're for-profit. But here's where it gets interesting. The boondoggle launched by Trump and being continued under Biden is indeed lucrative for private companies, and there's growing pressure from progressives in Congress to end it. In fact, I'm told a large letter is now circulating that'll call for just that. But as long as it or something like it exists, why should VC guys, private equity firms, and insurance companies be the only ones exploiting it? What's stopping cities and states around the country from setting up their own public provider networks and billing the federal government? That's one of the things I want to talk about with my guest Merrill Guzner today, because this isn't really a story about privatization. Or I should say, it's not only a story about privatization. By next year, half of the people in Medicare are forecast to be signed up for Medicare Advantage, which itself is a privatized version of Medicare. So the public horse is out of the private barn, or the private horse is out of the public barn, or however that analogy might work. This is more a story about how we're going to deliver care, who's going to deliver it, who's going to get it, and whether it'll be any good. Guzner is a veteran healthcare reporter who spent years at the Chicago Tribune and also served as editor of Modern Healthcare. He's the author of the 2004 book, $800 Million Pill, The Truth Behind the Cost of New Drugs, which was ahead of its time. And he currently writes a substack called Goose News. Merrill, welcome to Deconstructed. Uh, it's a, my pleasure to be here, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. So to start, can you t tell us who Dr. Arnold Relman is? Bud Relman, as his friends, and I wasn't a friend. I did work with him from time to time and interviewed him while he was still alive. Was the longtime editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. He was the one who really initiated around 1980 the whole idea that there's an awful lot of conflicts of interest in medicine and that we ought to pay attention to them. While editor, he instituted the conflict of interest disclosure rule there. He was a single payer advocate and, you know, really towards the end of his life, really devoted himself to models for delivery system reform. Uh, he's got a number of books I would recommend anybody who wants to get his, late, his last and in some ways most complete thinking on subjects. He had a book called Second Opinion, came out around 2007. Uh, and uh, it really is, it outlines many of the things that perhaps we're going to talk about this morning. Right. A, a single-payer advocate who zeroed in on conflicts, on the problem that profit-making kind of injects into the healthcare system, the healthcare delivery system. And I wanted to talk today about the article, you know, the idea that you fleshed out in your Washington Monthly article of capitation, because there's been, you know, talk recently on the left about what's being called a, a privatization scheme or basically the direct contracting program that CMMI has been has been pushing. First of all, let, let's talk about the problems with it. What what's been what are, what have been identified as flawed in that particular model. But I also want to get to whether or not 
the model itself is not only defensible, but maybe the better way to go. Sure. Before we can even begin talking about that particular model uh, and, and, the, and the whole idea of capitation, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll define that in a second, we have to understand what is. And what we have now within our healthcare system is largely what's called fee-for-service medicine. In other words, you go to the doctor or you uh, go to the hospital, if you wind up there, if you have the unfortunate circumstance of being sick, you're going to be treated by doctors and receive services, whether it's an operation or whatever, where every individual piece of what happens to you gets paid a certain amount of money. It's the equivalent of like piecework in the clothing industry. And it creates a kind of perverse sort of incentives that people have identified for years, which is is that the more you do, the more you make. So if, uh, <laughs> if, if a clothes maker could charge by the button, you might have a lot of shirts with an awful lot of buttons. Exactly. And so when you transfer that over into healthcare, you might have, well, every senior who walks into my, uh, say you're talking about senior citizens, aging, creaky knees, every senior who walks into my orthopedic clinic is going to look, you know, I'm the hammer. I know how to put in a replacement knee. This is going to be my nail. So I want you to get a $20,000 knee replacement operation. I don't want to send you for a series of $100 an hour uh, uh, therapy sessions, you know, with a physical trainer uh, to get the proper exercises so you don't need that operation. Uh, Even though you could probably spend years in physical therapy and have a just the equal quality of life if not better quality of life, because even when you get a replacement knee, if you remain, say, overweight or any other of the problems that are associated with that, uh, your new knee is just going to have the same problems as your old knee, if not right away, eventually. So, but I have an incentive as the orthopedic surgeon to do the most expensive operation on you possible. So all of that is the problem with fee-for-service medicine, and people have been thinking about ways of addressing that for literally decades. And what Relman talked about in his book, which Arnold Relman, who was the longtime editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, died around 2010 thereabouts. But near the end of his life, he really said, we really got to come up with a different way of paying people. And a different way of paying people is just to give capitated payments to providers, what he said was in nonprofit settings, where their incentive now is just to deliver the best care also with at the lowest cost because now you have to stay within the capitated payment that you receive for each patient. Right. And to define capitated, what do we mean by capitated? Well, you know, the way it's done in, in healthcare, where it's done today, is that you, you pay an entity a per patient per month fee for taking care of all of the healthcare needs of that particular patient. So therefore, it's like working on a fixed budget. So if the average Medicare payment, let's use that for example, is say about $12,000 a year, mm-hmm. we can talk about risk adjustment if you want to. But the point is if, the, if we have an average panel of patients, in other words, we have a bunch of sick people, we have a bunch of people who are completely healthy, and that for the whole group, say last year, there was an average cost of X, which actually in Medicare right now is about $12,000 a year, we'll pay you for your full panel of patients, $12,000 for each one, divided up, say, about $1,000 a month. It's called PMPM, per member per month 
payment mm -hmm. uh, into your nonprofit entity, and then you have to operate within that budget. So now you, the incentives have been reversed. Instead of trying to do more and collecting each fee for service payment from Medicare or any other insurance entity for that matter, you are getting a fixed payment. And so it's in your incentive as a provider to make sure that the care I give you for my whole group of patients brings in that amount of money spent below the amount. And that's where any additional money gets made if you're going to have a profit or if you're a nonprofit, you can then argue to Medicare, hey, we should have more people in our system because we're actually delivering high quality care at a lower cost. And therefore, we're helping lower your overall costs. And that, of course, is the way I feel like how we can address the overall one of the major problems in healthcare today, which is that our costs are escalating as fast as the rest of the economy. You want healthcare to grow at a slower rate than the rest of the economy. Why? Because you want a healthier population and you want lower cost healthcare. And so in an ideal world, how does this model deal with the, the reverse incentive problem of practices reducing the cost that they have by reducing the amount of care they have by making it harder for patients to get appointments or throwing up paperwork barriers or, you know, there's an asymmetry of knowledge. And so a doctor might know that a particular treatment might be the most effective in this situation, but it's super expensive. So, you know, take a couple aspirin instead. How do you, how do you get around that well, problem? Well, uh, if we understand that 5% of patients in any given patient panel will account for about half of your old costs. Well, this is implicit sort of in the insurance, any insurance scheme. Not everybody has a car accident every year, but if you do have a car accident, you want insurance to be able to pay for all the costs associated with that. Well, the same is true in healthcare. Not everybody gets sick every year, but some people have a lot of chronic disease. In fact, America has a very high rate of chronic disease. You know, we have uh, a lot of untreated hypertension. Uh, we have huge numbers of social problems that lead to mental health and behavioral health, other behavioral health disorders. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with our society that healthcare can only begin to contribute to addressing. Healthcare is the band-aid that we put on the sicknesses that result from a lot of those problems. So now, if I am a healthcare provider and I'm on a fixed budget, I can take a look at my patient population and say, who are most likely to be that 5% who are going to account for 50% of my costs? And what can I do extra for them within a fixed budget that might begin to address some of the underlying problems? So who are most likely to fall within that 5%? They're most likely to be poor. They're most likely to be unemployed. They're most likely to suffer from discrimination, which leads to all kinds of health problems. You know, it's the old living while black. And you have a hypertension is, is a huge problem in the African-American community. And so if I'm a healthcare provider, I have a real interest. Another issue I want to mention is asthma. You know, the amount of asthma in our society is extremely high. Oh, yeah. Leads to a lot of hospitalizations of kids every year. Okay, brief hospitalizations, but they have to have these asthma attacks. Okay, so how do you address that? Well, if I'm on a capitated budget and I'm a healthcare provider, I might want to say, wow, rather than keep sending people to specialists in the hospital, I can, if I can hive off money 
and like hire caseworkers and social workers, if I can have people go into people's homes, let me deal with those problems directly by hiring the kind of workers that can help these families and people address those problems. And capitation provides you the ability to do that in theory. Whereas fee-for-service medicine, there's no code where you're going to get reimbursed for sending a social worker into a person's home. Hmm. Right. <laughs> That's not a medical code. But you do get reimbursed if they go to the hospital with an asthma attack. Exactly. And so therefore, that's why our fee-for-service can't begin to address the underlying problems that contribute to so much disease in our society. So, And so speaking of what we have now, you recently wrote about how the Biden administration curiously put a lot of energy into advertising in this last open enrollment period, pushing people into the kind of privatized version of Medicare called Medicare Advantage, and are likely, you are guessing, to push the number to as high as 50%, you know, that half of people in Medicare will be in Medicare Advantage by next year. What is Medicare Advantage? Is that is that fee-for-service? You know, talk a little bit about that program. Sure. So uh, Medicare Advantage has been around for close to two decades now, uh, and it is a system where essentially Medicare, which is the largest insurer in, in the country, right, because it covers all seniors and all people on disabilities who have disabled and qualify for Medicare because of that, and it pays them a fixed amount every year which is, in theory, the average cost of a Medicare patient. Now, this gets risk-adjusted, which means you analyze the number of people who buy your uh, plans uh, in, in Medicare for what their underlying conditions are, and then you get paid additional money if they happen to be sicker, okay? But still, you're getting a fixed amount. But who sells Medicare Advantage plans? Okay. Medicare Advantage plans are sold by insurance companies. All right. So United Healthcare, Humana, Aetna, Cigna, this is who you're buying a Medicare Advantage plan from when you go into that form of Medicare. Medicare pays the insurer and then the insurer turns around and there are some examples around the country where they themselves pay capitated payments to providers but for the most part, Medicare Advantage plans then turn around and pay fee-for-service fees to the doctors and hospitals who use care when somebody in a Medicare Advantage plan gets sick. And so they have not reversed the incentives. They've actually used the incentives, same incentives, to uh, do a, a bunch of things that have med made Medicare Advantage more costly for Medicare than the average Medicare beneficiary. They do what's called upcoding. In other words, what they do is, is that they look through patient, patients' medical records, find diseases that may not be treated, and then they get an additional payment because that patient is classified as sicker, even though they're not being treated for being sicker. Right, and it has nothing to do with their treatment. Let me give you an example that's totally personal because it's my personal. I am in a Medicare Advantage plan, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but let's just start with what this upcoding is. I have slightly elevated cholesterol. I deal with that by not taking a statin drug, which is the prescription that you would get, 
And a lot of statins are actually generic today and are not that costly. But you know, just a few years ago, these were some of the most expensive drugs that you people were spending. You know, statin, Medicare was spending like $10 billion a year on statins. I don't know if, what the number is today, but it's not that high. And if I don't take that statin, but what I do is, is that I try to eat the Mediterranean diet. I try to control my cholesterol that way. But in my record, it might say that I had elevated cholesterol. Well, if I dealt with it by other means, it hasn't been treated, hasn't caught, cost my health insurer anything, yet they're still getting paid for that. So mm -hmm. finding this in a lot of people is, is the primary way that they game the system in order to increase their payments. The other way, which is we're quite familiar with, if people are old enough, they remember the patient backlash against health maintenance organizations. It's because they use bureaucratic means to what's called stint on care. In other words, deny care through methods of prior authorization by making it more difficult for the physicians who are in their networks. And narrow networks is another way that they only use the least costly physicians, people who might give them a cheaper price when they go out into the marketplace to price physician services. So there's a lot of gaming that goes on in Medicare Advantage, and it's run up the cost. However, within that additional profit that now the insurers are making, they make it advantageous for people to join. How? By eliminating the need for a supplemental plan. People often forget that Medicare does not cover all costs. There's besides the donut hole and the drug benefit that we hear about, there's also the co-payments. You go to the hospital, the first $1,000 in traditional Medicare is on you. Or it might even be a little higher now, as well as co-payments for physician services and other things that you have to pay extra for within Medicare. And so what they will do with some of their profits is either reduce or eliminate a lot of those extra costs. I don't have to buy a supplemental plan in my Medicare Advantage plan. And I don't have to buy a drug plan. And as a result, it saves me close to $200 a month. For me, it's like, okay, I've saved $2,400 a year. That's like a slush fund that I can conceptually think I have in order, should something happen to me, I can begin to pay the co-payments that might be in my Medicare Advantage plan. And that's why the other big flaw in Medicare Advantage is, is that it tends to be most attractive to seniors who are relatively healthy and to poor people who really like the idea that they don't have to pay anything extra up front for the supplemental plan. And so just to be clear, the way that you're sort of saving the $200 a month in a roundabout way is, is because the Medicare Advantage plan had figured out a way to upcode you. That's right. Make a little bit of extra money and they're, and they're sharing a piece of that with you. Is that more or less right? Exactly. It's called adverse selection <laughs> by the actuaries. And if they have, by through a variety of means of how they market people to come into their plan, they're getting mostly relatively healthy seniors, then they're going to have a lower medical cost. In other words, what their cost of doing business is. In other words, they got to pay claims. But for people like me, knock on wood, I don't have a lot of claims. And so therefore, at least right, not yet. And so therefore, uh, that's why uh, they can have additional profits from that as well. And so with 50% of Medicare in Medicare Advantage, that's, that's half privatized, even before you get to all of these other models that... Yeah. And that's that an I, estimate, by the way, for next year. Right. Uh, you know, we, we don't, won't know for several months, but based on everything I'm hearing, it looks like last year, 2021, it was 42%. 
And and we're talking about, you know, if you go back just a decade ago, it was like 25, you know, 25 percent. Mm-hmm. It has been steadily rising for the past decade, the percent in there. And given the government advertising that went on to supplement the Joe Namath ads we all see, you know, which is a lot of brokers, uh, you know, who are just brokering people into the insurance companies that, you know, so there there is an insurance brokerage industry. And I think that's who's running a lot of those, you know, private sector ads. Now we have even government ads encouraging you to choose a plan during the end of the year sign up period, which we just went through. And so a lot of the people who have declined to jump out of traditional Medicare into Medicare Advantage are now getting put into these direct contracting plans by virtue of being a patient at a provider who is one of these plans. So tell me a little bit about the the criticisms that Donald Berwick and Rick Gilfillan have had of this direct contracting model that was started under Trump, is still going under Biden, and you know, whether or not it has potential to be fixed or just needs to be shuttered and something else needs to replace it. Right. So as we describe Medicare Advantage as a capitated payment going out to uh, insurance companies, direct contracting opens up the concept, at least when it was first raised as an issue, of opening that up to provider-led organizations. When we say providers, that's sort of industry code word for doctors who are organized into physician practices and or hospital systems or hospitals. And hospital, we use the word hospital systems because the system often owns a lot of physician practices. They own outpatient clinics and they, of course, they own the hospital, which is at the, at the center of the system. So this, in theory, direct contracting would allow for a, a provider network to be able to get that capitated payment themselves without the insurance company as an intermediary. But at the same time, the way that it was built under the Trump administration, it was opened up so that insurers could also do direct contracting. And Mm -hmm. direct contracting will have its own system for figuring out, are we paying these people too much? And it'll be harder to figure out the way they set it up because we're not even going to get as accurate reporting back on what the actual costs were as we see in Medicare Advantage. And that's been a, you know, this gets deep into the weeds, but, you know, how much care are they actually paying for? When you have Medicare fee-for-service, well, Medicare pays every claim, so we know it knows exactly what the taxpayer is paying for for seniors and people who are disabled. When you give a capitated payment, the insurance company has to report back what were the account, who, what did I pay for hospital care for this patient? What did I pay for doctor care for this patient? And Medicare can look at that and say, you know, okay, wow, the risk adjustment was off and maybe we, we can figure out if we're overpaying. And they do. And we have been as taxpayers paying too much for Medicare Advantage. And then there's all this debate about how to fix that. And now we have a direct contracting model where there's even less reporting requirements than Medicare Advantage. And so we're not even going to know what's going to be going on inside some of these organizations and opening that up to the insurance companies rather than directly to providers, which a good argument can be made that it could be a useful program with appropriate guardrails if it goes directly out only to providers. But that's not the way they set up the program. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And so in your recent piece, you know, you you profiled some of the companies who also are participating in this program. What 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 does it look like if you're a patient in a well-run direct contracting or a well-run value-driven operation? Let's drop back and think about how you access healthcare in our society. We have given the the role of organizing our healthcare to the primary care physician. You identify who is your primary care physician. And this person is the first person you call when you get sick. If it turns out your symptoms are such that, oh my God, you've got this unexplored pain, it's really bothering you. The primary care physician looks at you and says, oh my God, you, know, you better go get this test and I'm going to send you over to the oncologist. I'm afraid it's that. It's some form of cancer. And now all of a sudden you're in the hands of the specialist. So the primary care physician is the most ideally suited person for really managing your care. So if we were to give a capitated payment to the primary care physicians or their practices that have the resources in order to actually do care coordination, as well as the initial diagnosis and management of your day-to-day medical needs that are not serious, If we were to infuse them with the cash, then they are best positioned. Say you get sent to the oncology practice, and it may be, you know, they'll have 20, 40 physicians that are practicing oncology. Or you go even to your primary care physician, there'll be four or six or eight. They tend to be smaller primary care practices across the country. But they are a partnership. So, you know, all practice of medicine in this society, even at the hospital level, except for government-owned hospitals and government-owned clinics, which are federally qualified healthcare clinics that serve mostly the poor, and you have maybe the Veterans Administration, okay, other than those exceptions, everything is privately owned practices and hospitals. Now, a majority of hospitals, most people don't realize this in this country, are not-for-profit hospitals. A good number of them are religiously affiliated, right? And, you know, you have the Catholic hospital systems, you have Presbyterian, Methodist, you know, Adventists, you know, systems that are out there. That it's a product of our history of who originally set up hospitals. And physician practices are largely privately owned. 
owned by the doctors in many cases. But what has happened over the last quarter century, and even going back further than that, is you've seen increased consolidation in the physician practice to where hospital systems now employ over 50% of all doctors and physician practices, organized within physician practices. And a lot of private firms have opened up or bought up physician practices. I don't want to go into all the problem that gets deep into the weeds about what they're doing and just the overall consolidation movement, but suffice it to say that they are profit maximizing organizations and, and, and are creating many of the same disincentives for less high, lower quality care by, you know, making the physicians see more and more patients, so, you know, within an hour and, and it's all, and then turning around and billing people and fee for service. So, we have huge problems in our delivery system. And, and what we really need to do is, is to make it so that potentially that you could give a, through direct contracting, to use that phrase, give them the per patient, per month fee so that they can coordinate care. And, you know, if they're within a nonprofit organization, give them incentives to organize the best kind of care. And interestingly enough, there have been some privatized startups, many of them financed by Wall Street funds, that have actually begun to use this model, many of them getting started with among the poorest patients within Medicare. So for instance, one of the companies, which I visited their, I live here in Chicago, and, and I visited their clinics, Oak Street Health, they've expanded around the country, but they started here in Chicago. And they operate on the near, for people who know the city, the near west side, some, one of the poorest neighborhoods uh, in Chicago. And they take Medicare Advantage payments from private insurers and take care of some of the sickest patients. And they just take that capitated fee and they do many of the things that I talked about earlier which is, is that they try to address many of the social causes that are causing people to have excess numbers of hospitalizations and excess numbers of chronic disease. They send caseworkers into people's homes. They call the building department if there, you know, there is something wrong with the home. Uh, they send home health aides to go in there to make sure if they're taking their medications. They're not on a fixed time budget with patients when they come in. They actually run almost like a senior citizen drop-in center in the neighborhood. Yeah, your your descriptions <laughs> sounded like a community center. Exactly. Sort of. I mean, I went there and I visited. And I remember that the, the medical director said to me, he said, you know, what middle-class people don't understand is they want this kind of care. And, and mm -hmm. I looked at it and I said, you know, th th I think that there is a strong argument for the model of care delivery. And what you therefore need in a direct contracting program is the kind of financial guardrails to make sure people don't game the system. And that starts with making sure that the upcoding doesn't go on, trying to give them the technical support that if they that nonprofits can get into the game. Because one of the things that for-profit organizations do bring is the initial capitalization to set this up. And we don't have a system in the nonprofit sector to be able to do that. Right. But this would be, it could be in the form of government grants. It could be in the form of technical assistance. And it could be in the form of a combination of, the, of both of them. So there's a lot of things that we could do 
to make sure that the, that this kind of direct contracting model uh, succeeded in a way that actually delivered better care for more people at lower cost. And on the government grant question, as I was reading your piece and as I was learning more during doing my reporting on this direct contracting program, I was thinking to myself, why are we allowing just the venture capital and private equity boys to walk off with all this money? You know, if CMMI is going to set up a program that is going to, you know, generously on a, in a capitated way, you know, fund patients to get quality kind of comprehensive care, what would prevent Washington, D.C. or New York City or Berkeley or Morgantown, West Virginia or the entire state of, uh, well, New Hampshire would never do it. Uh, <laughs> it feels like it's, right. uh, it's not living free and dying. Uh <laughs> But what you know? What would stop a public entity from saying, you know, what we I, we feel like we can do this just as well as these private equity guys, maybe better, and we're not going to be ripping off the government while we do it. Right. So you mentioned CMMI. That's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations, and that was set up by the Affordable Care Act. And of course, most of their emphasis over its first, you know, eight, nine years until, you know, we got deep into the got into the Trump administration and some of the people that he put in there at HHS got their hands on CMMI. It focused on setting up something called accountable care organizations, which tried to do exactly what uh, you were describing uh, with through a, a lot of it through hospital systems and through privately held physician practices. In other words, they were dealing directly with providers not through insurance companies, and trying to help them move towards uh, a capitated model, although that was never the goal. Most of what they set up was A, voluntary, and B, went with what was called a shared savings model. And shared savings is sort of like, okay, if the average cost of Medicare patients is going up X, if you bring it up at X minus 10%, You'll take 5% and 5% will be in lower cost for us as the government payer. And it was kind of almost like cute, (laughs) right? Because you had, okay, we've got these people in our accountable care organization, but basically the way we're making our money is is through fee-for-service medicine. And nobody really as a system or as a healthcare practice out there got deeply engaged in the game. And, you know, if you read the writings, you mentioned, you know, Rick Gilfillan, who was the first, who he was the head of a major hospital system uh, after uh, he actually was running. He helped set up many of these programs at CMMI originally. You know, he was and Don Berwick, who was also, you know, headed uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which runs the Medicare uh, program and, you know, helps contribute, you know, the federal government pays, you know, the, the larger portion of Medicaid payments around the country. And Berwick was running CMS. And the two of them were the big advocates of doing all of these experiments around the country and pushing the whole delivery system in that direction. But it never really got to any kind of critical mass. And that was because they made it voluntary. And let's be honest about it. A lot of the nonprofit hospital systems around the country Okay, including many of the government ones, you know, like a city government one, you know, run hospital systems where they have the sort of same incentives as even the private run 
companies. In other words, their doctors are on fee for service. They've got a huge plant. So, you know, if I'm running a hospital, I have more revenue coming in if I have more heads and beds. That's the phrase that they use in the industry. Right. The executives are making fortunes, too. And some of the nonprofit CEOs are making, you know, six, eight, ten million dollars a year. And their employment contracts have incentives for increasing revenue. And decreasingly, that's the case because, you know, boards have been under pressure for the last decade to not have that happen. And so the mindset of the delivery system hasn't been there to do what you were asking, which is why can't we set this up ourselves and do this model? Because it really does have the greatest potential for delivering higher quality care at lowest cost. And that's because we really haven't pushed them through government authority to do that. And that would either require an act of Congress to make it mandatory that they move into that kind of system or setting up programs that really create, you know, the sort of additional resources that are required to do it on the front end, the kind of make them an offer they couldn't refuse. In other words, we're going to, you know, pay for the kind of infrastructure that you have to create in order to set up this system. So, you know, when you look at an Oak Street Health and you look at, uh, they've really created kind of a neighborhood clinic here and they're paying their physicians on a salary, uh, that's a huge transformation if you're in a private practice affiliated with a hospital in most areas of this country. And so making that transition is a pretty abrupt shift. So you need to be able to cushion that transition. So what what would it take for a public run practice that's big enough to get off the ground? Because I feel like particularly young people coming out of medical school or doctors, nurse practitioners who have spent several years in the in the business, I think would leap at the opportunity at this point. But I, I don't think public health care has the same stigma that it used to. And I think if you could argue that, look, you don't have to just rush through every patient in 15 minutes. You're not going to have to do all of this paperwork that's driving you out of the business. So I feel like you could attract the people to do it. Then you need office space and you need the equipment. In other words, what, what would it cost? Like what, what does a venture capitalist throw into a project like this to get it off the ground before it starts turning these big profits from you know, Medicare payments? Right. Let me just start with the first part of uh, what you said, which is exactly right, which is, is that I believe most young physicians, if you take physicians under 40 today, most of them want to work as salaried doctors. If you, surveys have shown this, they want kind of regular hours and they want to practice humane medicine. Imagine that. They don't want to be on a fee-for-service treadmill where they only see somebody for 13 minutes and then have to go, you know, do enter something in a computer and then rush off to the next patient and never really get to know their patients. If somebody needs an half hour or uh, even an hour of, of uh, intensive workup and taking a look and finding out what's going on in their life so that then I can deal with, you know, getting them the proper social work or the proper home health aid or the proper whatever it is that they need, 
That's the way they want to practice medicine. So, and, and not only that, but in these, we, I haven't talked about this yet, but I want to throw into the mix the idea is that these practices also would have the capacity to hire think people like physician's assistants and nurse practitioners who have the ability to do a lot of the lower level stuff, like you know, giving tests or, or providing counseling, that therefore reserving the physician's time to actually deal with the more complex cases. And, and people want to practice medicine that way. So I think that the social base for making a transition absolutely is there within the medical professions and the medical support professions. So how do you get there? Well, one of the things you need is you need a, a very sophisticated health information technology infrastructure where you can pull down all of the information from all of the various places where this person may be getting care now, which can include the drugstore, which can include the, the government clinic, it can be the hospital. How do you bring that into a physician practice? Well, you need a fairly sophisticated information technology system that is the code word in the industry is interoperable, okay? So we need really a strong infrastructure in this country to create interoperability between all medical records that is instantaneously apparent to the healthcare provider on that computer screen when that patient is on your radar, whether they've come in today or you're trying to analyze how best to help them. And you need people who can do that. Well, that's another long discussion about why we don't have that. I won't open that can of worms now, but we're not there. And so therefore, you have to create that infrastructure for these practices. Another thing is just finance, you know, physical infrastructure. What does it mean to change your practice to have that way? Well, it's going to require hiring some new people to do tasks that you haven't done before. You might need technical assistance for that, okay? And you might need a different kind of physical place where you're operating. It's not the Here's a waiting room and here's four single rooms or five single rooms or eight single rooms in the back where we'll lead everybody once it's their turn past the front desk where you have an office. You know what it looks like, right, when you go into a doctor's office. And, you know, maybe that's not what we need. Maybe what we actually need is, is we need a big front place where there's, you know, uh, people can actually uh, see that there's, uh, you know, here's a desk where you can get housing assistance. And here's a desk where maybe you can get food assistance if you need it. That might be how, how do you create that for physician practices that want to be in a position to take a capitated payment in order to provide that kind of care to people. Well, let's say you're in, you are one of those physicians practices, or you're, let's say you're the mayor of Allentown, Pennsylvania. What does it take to make that possible at this point? I think government, local and state governments can play a huge role in this. And the role that they currently play is sending money to existing programs, primarily Medicaid or local assistance to fill in the cracks of social service programs. So in other words, local government <laughs> may be involved in, you know, the housing department, or you may have a public health department, which is dealing with like vaccinations, or right now we're dealing with COVID-19. And, and, you know, you have a very truncated set of things you're dealing with. States' primary role in healthcare is, is funding Medicaid, okay, which takes care of poor people, 
and it takes care of who can't afford health insurance because they're not employed for one reason or another. And it also has a huge long-term services and supports, is called, what it's called, program. But this is where they're sending in the home health aides into people who are disabled, people who are in nursing homes. And of course, they're paying for a tremendous amount of nursing home care if you have no assets to be able to afford nursing homes. So that's what state governments are paying for. Most people don't know this, but over 70% of Medicaid patients in this country right now are managed by for-profit insurers, okay? So Medicaid programs have gotten out of the business of what CM, what Medicare does in its fee-for-service program, long ago, most of them, and turned it over by paying capitated payments to insurance companies to take care of Medicaid patients. And of course, as most people who follow Medicaid closely know, the number of physicians who participate in Medicaid is less than what participates in Medicare. Right, uh, And so... By definition, if you're on Medicaid, you are in a narrow network, okay? And, of course, the people on Medicaid have, because they are poor for the most part, have a disproportionately high share of, of health care problems for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. But you have a base of things locally that you can say, how can we reorganize this and use some of this cash flow <laughs> to move in this direction? that we're talking about. Now, that would have a huge, you would need to really have some creativity at the local level to begin doing this at the state and local level. But I, the, the experts are out there to help you do that. And, you know, if the government were willing to take the lead. And, and in fact, for me, Ryan, as somebody who has sort of, you know, as a, I'm a professional journalist for most of my life, but I've spent a couple of stints in my life in the public interest movement, two five-year stints, to put it plainly, you know, even though I'm now over 70 years old. But what we've never done, you know, the progressive movement in this country has never focused its attention on delivery system reform. Right. It's focused all of its attention on insurance reform, a huge problem, remains a huge problem, and we need to deal with getting everybody insured in this country, don't, you know, by one way or another. Uh, And uh, because, frankly, anybody who's uninsured is a major problem for any system you're going to set up. And we could go into we know all the reasons for that. It's because you, you know, you have all of the increased health care of a poor person with because it's disproportionately people who are lower income, who are, uh, you know, are unemployed or whatever that. And when they do show up for health care, it's because they've allowed the problems to fester where they now become among the most expensive patients in the system. And so therefore, we need to get everybody insured. So I'm not putting that down as an emphasis. That's very important. We got to deal with that. But that's what we basically spent most of our time doing. And we have not focused on the delivery system side. And I guess, you know, my message after spending many years sort of in this field, writing and thinking about it, you know, I was the editor of Modern Healthcare Magazine, which went out 
to executives, hospital executives primarily. That was our audience. It's a trade journal all over the country. And, you know, everybody sort of gets this intuitively, but nobody, you know, knows how to move from point A to point B. So therefore, all of the experiments have always been partial in delivery system reform and voluntary. And no state you know, you got to remember, even before Obamacare, there was Massachusetts Romney care. You know, you, you need state examples of people taking the lead. So I would hope that in maybe the next couple of years, it could be starting today or whatever, that people will begin to think about this model and then saying, hey, wow, you're right. Let's try to do this in the government sector. Let's try to do this for Medicare and Medicaid patients altogether in, here in our state, which is you have immediate control, more immediate control over. And we can open it up to employers and employer-sponsored plans to come into this and create a city-based or state-based system that tries to facilitate transformation of the system into this more coordinated care model that we've been talking about. Yeah. And the other reason I wanted to talk about this this week is because, you know, I, I was struck by your insight that that the left has really lacked a focus on the delivery side of it. Uh, but also come 2023, as everybody knows, it's highly likely that uh, Republicans are going to be in control of one or both chambers of Congress. And so if there's going to be organizing activity and, and political pressure to try to make people's lives better, you're going to have to do it in places where it's possible. And this this seems like one of them. I think that's absolutely the case. I think that there's a lot of interesting statewide models around the country. I would point to one that I would wish people would pay more attention to, and that's in Maryland, mm -hmm. where since the 1970s, they've, they've had what's called an all-payer model, where every, every price inside a hospital has to be the same for every payer, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, or somebody walking in just off the street with no insurance at all. And right now, we have variable prices. Well, when you go to all-payer pricing, it increases government costs but it, and reduces private costs. You could say, well, it's a, it's a subsidy for the private employers out there. Yeah, but it gets a, rid of a lot of the problems that are associated with variable pricing, which is where the uninsured pay the highest prices. And, you know, government, especially Medicaid, underpays for its services. And so if you were to actually move more of healthcare spending into the public sector, you'd have more control over how that money gets spent. And then you could try to talk about reforming the delivery system model. And there are some evidence, actually a lot of evidence to suggest that Maryland, as a result of that, has been able to devote more of its resources to taking care of some of the social conditions that are exacerbating the use of health care and uh, reducing over time, the overall spend that, and not absolute reduction, but growing at a slower rate than the rest of the healthcare economy. You know, when you tried to create a single payer system, and even in Vermont, it just fell apart because of the level of taxation needing to completely wipe out private insurance. So I think focusing on delivery system reform and even opening it up to private insurance people to come into your system mm -hmm. once you've built it, is right. maybe a way of unlocking some of the other things where we've not been able to make progress 
in terms of the, creating a better healthcare system for people and one that doesn't cost as much as it does in the United States. Well, feels worth a shot. Merrill, thank you so much for joining me. Ryan, thanks for having me on. Like I said, uh, can I make a plug for my own uh, writing on? Oh, healthcare? please do. Well, it's Goose News, G O O Z N E W S dot Substack dot com, and you know I write a couple of times a week, maybe sometimes just once a week, where I you know focus mostly on healthcare. Like I said, I spent the most of the last quarter century of my journalism career focusing on healthcare, and uh, so it's sort of become. Uh, the way I try to continue keeping my hand in, and uh, I still think I have something to offer here. So if people want to sign up, feel free. You don't have to. I, there is a way to subscribe, but you know you don't have to pay. Just sign up for the free stuff, and you'll get most of what I write. Absolutely, and I've been a, a longtime uh, reader and admirer of your work, and I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. That was Meryl Guzner, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our intern is Truk Wynn. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. In fact, see you next year. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.